new church year. I've entitled our message today, Peace-Filled Hearts for a Post-Christian World. Peace-Filled Hearts for a Post-Christian World. We want to continue our single-minded focus on being a vibrant church of disciple-makers, but specifically here in the English congregation, we want to equip disciple-makers for a post-Christian world. We believe that our current vision, our strategies, our culture, everything actually aligns with this single-minded focus. I want to start this morning by inviting you to turn to John 17. So we're in John 14, but since we won't be back in John 17 until next year, uh, I do want to start there, John 17, and set us up for the introduction and into our time in His Word. John 17, this is part of Jesus' high priestly prayer where he goes before the Lord and prays for his disciples. He prays for his 11 at that point. Judas had already departed to betray him. And then he extends that prayer to all of us, all who would believe in him through the ministry, through the centuries, through his disciples. John 17, verses 14 and 16. And here we see this popular understanding that we as Jesus' people are called to be in the world, but not of the world. John 17, starting in verse 14, Jesus says this about his disciples, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, because we've been born again, just as I'm not of the world. Verse 15, but here's the, here's the kicker. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So here we see that Jesus says of his followers that we are not made of this world. We're created to live in this world, but once you're born again, you're made of the Holy Spirit. You're born of the Spirit. You are new creatures in Christ. And so very clearly, we are no longer of this world. Yes, we still have our sinful nature. Yes, we still struggle with the flesh. Yes, we still struggle with sin. But very clearly, we are not of this world. But then Jesus says, I do not take them of this world. I need these out-of-world people to be in the world. And in other places, Jesus uses the illustration of salt and light. We are to be the light of the world. We are to be the salt of this earth. I think sometimes we see not being of the world as a destination. And that's not how Jesus describes it for his followers. Not being of the world is actually the entry point. Think missionally. Not being of the world is being born again. Not being of the world is your starting point. Your destination is to be missionaries in this world. Have you ever thought of it this way? That not being of this world is not something that you and I can produce in our own ability and power. Not being of this world is something that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross and the Holy Spirit continues to work in us. But being sent into the world, that is our task. That is our mission. That is our call. So you've heard it said, like I mentioned, that we are the salt of this earth. Tim Keller said this. He said, quote, as salt, we must disperse into the meat to do its work. So Christians are not to stay closeted 
and withdrawn, but are to fan out into the world to bring out the best in their particular society while seeking to offset its worst tendencies. End quote. If you think of that last sentence, we are to, do, we are to bring out the best Representing God's presence in wherever he's called us, a particular part of society in a particular time in society, while seeking to offset the worst tendencies in this world. We're, we are to be among sinners. We are, in to be, we are to be in sinful places, but we ourselves maintain the quality of salt. You see, salt must maintain its purity. That, that's challenging. We are to be in this world, but not compromise, but yet we are not to run. We need the strength of the Spirit, but very much so we need to be in this world. In every age in society, the church is called to a different battle. We're not called to the 1600s, the, the, the 1700s, the 1800s. We're not called to 1980, 1990, or the 2000s. We are called in this time, in this place, going into the 2020s. And we are in, especially here in California, a post-Christian world. We are in a post-Christian world. But again, that doesn't mean we enter this world with a spirit of antagonism or, and I think for a lot of us, it's fear. It's fear. You know, I'm pretty confident that even here in California, there are certain things that Christians can do for your faith that might get you in trouble, but we're not at the point yet, like the Muslim countries or in other countries in East Asia, we're not at the point yet where if you simply express your faith, you'll be thrown in jail. You might not get a promotion, you might even lose your job depending on what field of work you're in, but it's not yet where we are physically being beaten or tortured, but there's something else that God calls us to. There's something else we're afraid of and that's exiting our comfort zone. A lot of times when we as Americans think of peace, we're thinking of our comfort zone. You see, we're thinking not of persecution in a physical sense, but we're thinking of discomfort, that it's no longer comfortable to be Christians. We might face rejection, our social status might be hurt, but we can easily go back into our own communities. But when I talk about discomfort, I am talking about engaging real people where our values are challenged. The values that we want to teach our children are challenged. I think Jesus is giving us training wheels. He's saying, you're not at the point that the American church, especially the suburban box church, is not ready to be thrown in prison yet. We'll start slowly by maybe losing some tax shelter and tax benefits. We'll start slowly in the schools and the workplaces where your ideas and your comfort is challenged. But yet, again, we are not called to retreat. We are called to engage people. We're called to engage people. Now, the disciples found themselves in a much more daunting situation. Jesus is going to build his church upon the preaching and ministry of his disciples. And so he's going to send them out into an unbelieving world much more hostile than the state of California. <clears throat> He's sending into the, them into this world, and he is actually going to first go to the cross. So Jesus, very soon, he's going to be arrested. How terrifying is that? 
that you're one of his disciples. He hasn't even resurrected yet. And the person that you've given your life over to, to follow, he's about to get arrested. And they're going to take him, they're going to beat him, and they're gonna, his disciples are going to see this. And they're like, that's the, that's the person that we believe is the son of God. That's the person who performs miracle after miracle. He's powerful. And, and look, they're beating him. Look, look, they're torturing him. They're going to put him on the cross. How discouraging for his disciples. So no doubt their hearts would be troubled. Not the type of trouble that you and I face, but true trepidation and fear, true tribulation. And now we get to our passage. They truly will have to be the salt of this earth. And we get to John 14, verses 27 and 31, where Jesus prepares his disciples for a post-Christ world. He's about to leave them. He prepares them by giving them two essential things. One, he gives them his peace. Two, he gives them his cross. That's what he prepares them for. These are two essentials that we also need for a post-Christian world. We need one, his peace, and two, we got to remember his cross. So again, a peace-filled, peace-filled hearts for a post-Christian world. First, we're going to see his peace. We see this in John 14, verse 27. If you have God's word, look with me now. John 14, verse 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And then he gives the command twice, right? There's an imperative. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's the Greek imperative. And then neither let them be afraid. Once again, an imperative. So we've already mentioned in the previous weeks that let not your hearts be troubled is a command. Neither let them be afraid. And instead, he's going to send the helper, his Holy Spirit. So, so the Holy Spirit would empower and encourage his disciples. In other words, it is imperative, Jesus says, to let not our hearts be filled with trouble. Rather, we need to fill our hearts with trust. Let me say that again. Let not your hearts be filled with trouble. Let it be filled with trust. Trust is the starting point. Trust in Christ, and then you'll have peace. Trust in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you will have peace. He leaves his peace with us. Now, the New Testament concept of peace is multifaceted. When you do a word study of the word peace in the New Testament, oftentimes... It's speaking in a Pauline context. When Paul often speaks of peace, many times he's talking about our standing before God. God is our judge, and we are sinful, and we deserve his wrath. But if you have Christ, you have achieved a standing where you have peace with God. Now, no doubt that it is out of our standing with God, being at peace with God, that it flows into having emotional peace with God. But in this context, I do not believe that Jesus is referring to our righteous standing before God. That is not the peace that he's talking about. Although he is going to achieve that peace for his disciples on this cross. But when he says, my peace, he's speaking specifically. And if you read carefully, there is a location where this peace takes place, right? There is a location where his peace does its work. And where is that location? Look, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
This is an inner peace. This is a peace that brings you not physical comfort, but emotional comfort when you're physically suffering. This is not a peace that eliminates earthly trouble. This is a peace of heart amid, uh, in the middle of earthly trouble. This is the ability to experience internal shalom in the midst of tribulation. I'll show you why I, we believe that it's talking about an inner peace of emotion and inner peace that empowers you from within. John 16, verse 33. John 16, verse 33. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have not peace. Tribulation. Tribulation is not just a little bit of trouble. Tribulation is suffering. You will have tribulation, but take what? Heart. I have overcome the world. So he's saying, take heart. He's not talking about your position in Christ. We know that Jesus Christ gives us a righteous position before the throne of God. He's talking about your posture. Yes, once again, the position of justification gives you the posture of peace. But he's speaking here, take heart. I've overcome the world. And then... Paul does pick this up in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, where he says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your what? Your hearts. Your hearts. It's not guarding your position in Christ. Jesus guards your position in Christ. He won your position. He's guarding your position in Christ. He's keeping you saved. He will guard your hearts, guard your hearts and your minds, mental illness, your mind, your heart, right? When you're over anxious, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding because your mind can't make sense of your circumstance. This is not a circumstantial peace, but when you can't reach for circumstantial peace, you have an eternal, internal peace will guard your hearts and your minds, in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will keep your heart from going insane. It will keep your mind from going insane. So once again, Jesus does not offer circumstantial peace, but a peace that will carry you through every circumstance. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ does not offer a circumstantial peace. It's not temporary. It is not a peace that he gives you for the circumstance, but a peace that will carry you through every circumstance. Jesus offers us peace that builds you up from within, even when everything is being torn down around you. It gives you a peace that builds you up and holds you together, even when the world around you is falling apart. In Christ, you will realize that the world is not falling apart. The world has fallen. Get that? you will realize the world is in its state, not because it's all of, a, all of a sudden falling apart. It's been fallen since Genesis 3. Instead, you'll look toward the peace that comes through the person who we know as our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. The peace the world offers might include something different, though. So in our passage, we see that Jesus said, I, peace I give to you, it's his peace, not like the peace that the world offers. Now, what kind of peace the world, does the world offer? Well, the world offers circumstantial peace, 
right? The, the, the world offers, it might be a temporary escape. It might be a lie. It's not real peace. Instead, it's pleasure. So the world might say, hey, this is a tough place to live. So why don't you get some temporary pleasure? It might be a temporary escape, false peace, superficial peace, right? It, it, it might even offer you a, a temporary peace of mind to protect your comfort. Remember, one of the things that we idolize a lot is our comfort. All of us do. So uh, the world knows that they can't stop sickness from coming, that they can't stop car accidents that you can't control, that they can't stop natural disaster. The world system knows that. People are smart enough. They know that they can't stop trouble from coming towards you. Everyone knows that. So instead, they offer you something that we all need, and sometimes, in many cases, it's illegal to not have it uh, in the case of driving, is that they give you insurance. When that trouble comes, You'll be covered financially. You'll be covered medically. That's the best the world can offer you. It, hear me now. The world is saying the same thing that Jesus is saying. The tribulation will come. But we can't stop it. We'll give you something that will give you a mental peace of mind and you pay for it with your money. And, and Jesus is saying, no, no, I give you something better. I give you something better. You might still need that financial insurance, but I give you something that surpasses every single circumstances, that even when the insurance takes too long to come through, and you're at City of Hope, and you're like, when is this insurance going to be approved, and you don't have peace, and the Holy Spirit says, I got something better for you. When you get hit by, by someone who is uninsured, and you're struggling now, physically hurt, Jesus says, I got something for you that surpasses this circumstance. Jesus is better than State Farm. He, he's not just the good neighbor. Like a good neighbor, State Farm will be there. He's always there. And he calls you to be the good neighbor. I'm not bagging on State Farm. I have State Farm. <laughs> but I know what's more important than State Farm is the state of being in Christ and with Christ, right? So that's what the world offers. They give you insurance Peace for the moment, peace of mind. If something bad happens to you, you're financially covered. For many of us in here, we struggle with a different type of insurance. But it's actually a story. It's actually a meta-narrative. You see, every human being lives for a meta-narrative. They might not know it, but there's a meta-narrative. There's a larger story that is driving and guiding them. For you and me, God willing, it is the story of the gospel. It is the story of the kingdom. It is the story of Jesus Christ, our king. It is the story of the Bible. But we often, ever since you're little, there's a framework of thinking. And I'm speaking to the people in this room. Okay, I'm speaking to myself. I'm speaking to us. Even those of us in ministry, we have this meta-narrative of achievement. Not everybody has this uh, meta-narrative. Not everyone has the opportunity. But the meta-narrative of achievement is, this is how you can achieve the peace that the world offers. If you study hard, if you work hard, have you heard this gospel? Two things will happen. Number one, you will be able to afford, you can afford a peaceful life. Financially, you can buy insurance. 
I know it's funny. The more you own, the more insurance you have to buy. Think about it. Insurance agents, agents, you guys are like great business. Great business. If you're super wealthy and you own a boat, you got to insure it. <laughs> the more houses you own, you got to insure it. The more vehicles you own, the better the vehicle, you got to insure it. <laughs> you, you guys realize you're working for insurance? The, the, the person who, who doesn't own anything, they don't insure anything. Even your cell phone, you got to buy insurance. Your laptop, you need Apple Care, but I got Jesus Care. <laughs> but thank you, the church. You know, if, if I bust my laptop, the church will cover it, right? So, at the, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, you're working for insurance. Yeah, you, and then life insurance, right? And then the life insurance is the one where it's for your kids, it's for your family. Like you die and then you get to see it, right? But then you got to die in a certain way. It's, ah. Oh. <laughs> Just think about it. Is that the life you want that we're living for insurance? But isn't that the peace that the world offers for us, people in this room? So, if you study hard, if you work hard, you can buy lots of insurance, healthcare, security, you can afford you know, better insurance, better healthcare, right? Uh, you can live in a safer neighborhood uh, with better schools. You can basically work hard, study hard, study hard, work hard, and you can afford peace, but you know, bad guys can still come, you can still get robbed, you can still get hit uh, by a drunk driver, so you need insurance. But the second thing, in this narrative of achievement is not just what you can afford, but it, is, it tells you that if you're successful, you'll have peace. We call that fulfillment. Because everyone's definition of success is different. So whatever it is that you want, whether it's fame or lots of money or you wanna you know, start your own business and be very successful or you have lots of degrees, whatever it is, right, whatever it is that you want, that if you study hard and you work hard, you can achieve inner peace. And you will find a sense of fulfillment in your life because you've achieved a certain standard. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to venture too far to say that in our world we realize that none of this is true. It's circumstantial, it's temporary. If it was true, those who are wealthy and comfortable and have lots of insurance would never have depression or, or have their lives filled with anxiety. If it is true that when you achieve a certain standard that you would have peace with yourself, we would not need psychiatrists, psychologists, biblical counseling, or the gospel. You see, deep inside, we are very broken people. Deep inside, we are very fragile people. And so that's why when Jesus says, in this world there's tribulation, let not your hearts be troubled. He knows that it doesn't take too much for our hearts to be troubled. That the only solution for our hearts to come to true peace is that he has to go to the cross. And so that leads us to point number two. Point number one is that he offers his peace. 
But point number two is the only way that we are going to achieve his peace, and not just the peaceful standing before God, but peace within our hearts is through his cross. And so he's preparing his disciples for his cross. Let me read to you first verse 28. Look at me now, verse 28. He says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'll come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. So in other words, he's going to die for sins. He's going to go to the Father and that's going to allow us to be saved. He's going to go to the Father so that the Holy Spirit could come. He's going to go to the Father so that one day he could bring us with him to the Father. Everything Jesus says to his disciples in verses 28 to 31 is meant to prepare them for his death and resurrection, for his death and crucifixion, then his resurrection. He's going to the Father. And if they understood the gospel, which it makes sense that at this point that they, are, they haven't fully understood the gospel yet, the resurrection has not occurred yet, that they would have rejoiced because they, they would have said, if Jesus doesn't go, then we can't go to the Father. We can't have salvation. We can't have internal peace. But because he's going to die. This is terrifying for us, but it's good. It's ultimately good because sin separates us from the Father and Jesus is going to go deal with sin and then the Holy Spirit's going to come. But then Jesus says, for the Father is greater than I. And I got to explain that. Jesus is not saying that God the Father is greater than God the Son in terms of value and essence and worth. He's saying he's greater in terms of their function and role. And role. That Jesus is in subordination to the Father as part of design, in particular in his redemptive plan. Because there will be a day when we all bow down to Jesus Christ on his throne. And so Jesus Christ will be the king of heaven. But Jesus' aim is to glorify his Father. And the Father's aim is to glorify his Son. And the Spirit brings that glory into fruition and reality. You see... Jesus Christ willfully submits to his Father as greater than him when it comes to the redemptive plan of God. But God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit play a different role in God's plan of redemption, even though they're equal in essence and value. Look no further than Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, where Jesus says this. It says this at the latter end of verse 5. It says, Christ Jesus... Then in verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now get that, he's still equal to God. Jesus Christ, equality with God is present, but he did not consider that something that he would hold on to and not let go. Because if he didn't let it go, he would have, wouldn't have become a human being to die for our sins. Verse 7, but Jesus Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He made himself lesser, temporarily. By be becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And this is what, where he's going. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see that? That when you get to heaven, we are not going to be praising the name of God the Father. 
we are not going to be praising the name of the Holy Spirit. We will be praising the name of Jesus Christ. And when we praise the name of Jesus Christ, the Father will receive maximum worship and glory. When we receive, when we praise Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will receive maximum glory and honor. And that's why it says, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to whose glory? To the glory of God the Father. God the Father is most glorified when Jesus Christ is magnified. I don't know, actually, if John Piper ever wrote that or said that. Probably, <laughs> I listened to him way too much in the first 19 years of my ministry. For Finally, this year, I stopped listening to him because he, listening to John Piper every single week caused me to scream at you guys so much. <laughs> Piper influences me. My, my preaching was so Piperian that I said, I got to pipe down on Piper a little bit so that I stop screaming. So today I'm trying to talk to you with my pink shirt on so you know I'm soft. Okay. All right. I, I told you I wasn't lying. I got this this pink shirt was uh, extra 70% off because, you know, nobody likes it. It just looks very, it just doesn't look good on a man. <laughs> but I love you. I want you to know I love you. Happy Mother's Day, even when it's not Mother's Day. <laughs> now, verses 29 to 30, back in John 14, Jesus wants his disciples to know why he's being arrested, right? He's going to the cross. So... <laughs> And now I've told you, verse 29, before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. <laughs> He's going to say a lot in verse 15, in chapter 15, 16, 17. So, so stop there. He's not saying he's going to stop talking, okay? He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. In other words, he's saying that, that his time on earth is done. His time on earth is drawing to a close. That's all he's saying. He's not, he's not saying he's not going to say another word. I will no longer talk much with you because the ruler of this world is coming. Now, I want to spend some time here, expositionally. Who's the ruler of this world? Jesus. That's the right answer, but not in this context, right? Not in this context. In this context, he's talking about the devil, and the devil, I think it's John Piper that actually said this, so, the John Piper says, the devil is only ruler of this world by permission. The devil is only ruler of this world because God allows him to. You see, the devil is a ruler in a different sense. He rules over unbelieving hearts that are still enslaved to him. Is that he's actually leading a rebellion. He's leading the rebels. And he's leading hearts that are bent against God. And once again, thinking about a post-Christian world, that's why we can't get troubled or too upset when we see the post-Christian world, when we see ideas and values and an entire world system that's bent against the values of God. The only reason why you love the things of God and when the, when the when things of God are pressed down against, you start to get troubled and agitated is because you've been born again. But if you haven't been born again, your heart is naturally in a rebellion where you don't know it's in rebellion. And because that rebellion looks like love. It's love that has fallen. It's distorted love. It's love for everything else in this world except for the things of God. And so the ruler of this world rules over fallen souls. You see, that's where we change our mindsets. 
towards the outside world is that the only way that we're going to have peace happens when there's internal change. The devil is the ruler of the kingdom of darkness, but if you are a believer, you're no longer under that rule. You're no longer in the kingdom of darkness. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into what we call the kingdom of light. And that's why your eyes have been opened. The devil is ruler only by permission. And then... Jesus says, look at verse 30, he, referring to the devil, has no claim on me. Those of you with the Greek New Testament open, I, uh, the last time I said that, someone sent me a, a text and they were sitting in service and they had their Greek Bible open. It says, literally, he has no claim in me. Okay, when, it's, when it says he has no claim on me, the Greek literally says, in me. And why would he say that? Because Jesus is sinless. It goes back to the book of Job. It goes back to our understanding of demonology, our understanding of Satanology, our understanding of what Satan does. He lies. He doesn't have power to do what God does. He lies. Truth is powerful, is it not? So when you don't have the truth, what's your most powerful thing? You lie. But once that lie is exposed, it collapses. And when he lies... He not only lies, he accuses. And when you accuse someone of lies, you don't have grounds. But when he accuses sinners, he has some grounds that we're sinful. So when Satan goes before God, remember, Satan was a formerly an angel. He has access to God. He goes before God and he says, look at your sinners. Look at these people. Look at these people who claim to follow you. Look at David, the man after your own heart. Look at him. Look how sinful he is. Look at Abraham, right? Look at, look, look at your people. But <laughs> Satan can't go before God and say, look at your son. Look at how sinful he is. That's what Jesus is saying is that he has no claim in me. He has no claim in me. Jesus is saying, I am sinless. I am sinless. So here's the big picture. Here's what Jesus wants his 11 disciples to understand. When they come and arrest me, it is, number one, not because, not because Satan has won, okay? When they come arrest me and crucify me, it is not because I have sinned. It is not because Satan has somehow become victorious. It is because what I'm going to tell you in verse 31. So number one, he says, no, number one, it's not because Satan has won. But in verse 31, it is because I'm going to the cross in obedience to God the Father. God the Father is greater than I in terms of my subordination to him on the cross. Now look at me at verse 31. He wants his disciples to be prepared. Here's why I'm going to be arrested. But I don't go because Satan has a claim on me. He has no claim in me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, that's actually an imperative in the Greek. Rise, let us go from here. So they start walking through Jerusalem at that point. So notice that Jesus is obedient to his father. And he does this 
because he loves God. He wants people to know, I love my father. I'm in loving, willful subordination to my father as I go to the cross. I'm doing this according to God's plan. And so he prepares his disciples by telling them, here's why I'm going to the cross. I'm not going to the cross because Satan is one. I'm going to the cross in obedience to my father because I love the father and so that he can bring his disciples to his father. Now the big idea this morning is that Jesus gives us one his peace. My peace I give to you. My peace I, li- I leave with you. And that peace is only made possible through the cross. So the big idea is that Jesus gives us his peace that is only made possible through his cross. Jesus gives us his peace that is only made possible through his cross. Now, for application this morning, we've been talking a lot about the challenge of living in a post-Christian world. I just want to spend about 10 minutes or so talking about how we should live, and I want to speak specifically to the situation of when you as a Christian meet someone whose values are radically different from yours, but in this specific application, these people want to be your friends. What do you do? So I'm not talking about where people are persecuting you outright. I'm not talking about where they don't want to befriend you. I'm saying, what do you do? Because now in 2022, 2023, we are entering a world where naturally you can no longer avoid people with very post-Christian values. In fact, post-Christian values are becoming normal. It's being normalized, especially in our state that everything is normal. These people, if you're nice, which I hope if you're a Christian, you're nice. I hope if you're a Christian, you're loving, because if you are, people are going to want to be your friends. If you're honest, people are going to want to work with you and learn from you and be with you. Then when they want to befriend you, but their values are radically very different, what do you do? I want you to consider two considerations. These are just, this is just a starting point. When we get to October, we want to say a lot more. The first is, we need to change our entry point or entry posture. We have to have a missionary mindset. Let me say that again. We got to get a missionary mindset. When you exit these four walls, you got to change your perspective. Previously, we lived in something we didn't call post-Christian world. The definition of a post-Christian world, there's so many different definitions, but the easy one is we live in a Western society where there's a lot of values, like tolerance, for example, like respecting, like democracy, respecting agree to disagree, but we should be civilized. That was assumed. And actually, that's built on a Judeo-Christian worldview. But nowadays, people want tolerance and civility, but no God. So they have no foundation, and that's why tolerance has been corrupted, and it, it, it's, it's totally messed up, right? And so we're no longer in this world. We're no longer in this pre, pre or this whatever you call it, Judeo-Christian world. That's all we mean, that we're entering into a world where everything has been twisted, and now you're in this post-Christian world where there is no objective truth. There is no more objective truth of who determines what is agreeable in terms of what is commonly good, right? The common good has been redefined. And so when you're a missionary, you change your mindset, that you don't assume that the world agrees with you. So you don't have this Western entitlement anymore. Instead, you're more like the missionary entering into the Muslim country. You already know that everybody, their values are very different from you. 
You know that. So even safety of your values, you don't assume it. That's the strength that I want us to grow towards. Where as soon as you exit these four walls, you're like, okay, everybody, you assume. I mean, not out of anger, but you assume. I love these people. I want to reach them. But they're radically different from me. Okay? They're radically different from me. And I guarantee you something else, collaterally positive, is that if you happen to meet another Christian, you're not going to argue with them about tertiary or secondary things anymore. You're going to be like, oh, do you believe in Jesus? Hey, me too. Let's be friends. Because you're in a post-Christian world. That there's going to be much more unity over primary doctrines. Because when you're in a post-Christian world, you cannot afford to sit there and argue anymore about, oh, I like hymns. I like praise songs. (laughs) That's not even an issue. You're a Christian. I am too. Let's be friends because the world, Jesus says, is filled with tribulation. Right? We need to change our mindset. One Christian leader, a former missionary, one Christian leader wrote about how his childhood camping trips were seen as adventures. Any of you guys can relate to this, parents? Where you plan a camping trip, but for your children, it's like, oh, we're going to go outdoors, and it's going to be dangerous, and there's risk. Yes, there's risk. A bear might come, right? Yes, there's a risk. Coyotes and, uh, the, you know, poison, poison oak and poison ivy. And, then, you know, you might get in a car accident and so forth. Uh, yes, there's risk. But as he got older, he realized that these camping trips were just vacations planned out by his parents. And so we can all understand that while camping at a national park campsite comes with some risk, it's very different from embarking upon a true uncharted wilderness adventure. Would you agree? I I would feel comfortable camping at a mammoth campground or Yosemite. But I'm not the kind of guy that just wants to go into some wilderness, not even in California. I don't want to go off where there's no trail. I'm just not that kind of guy. That's a totally different world you're talking about. I don't even want to go into that, you know, Grand Avenue when it goes Diamond Bar into Chino Hills. I stay on the road. I'm not even going out out there into Coyote Land. I'm not going out there. Some of you agree with me. I'm scared of snakes. Satan's a snake. I'm scared of snakes. So you get what I'm saying. We, We don't want to go. But this same Christian leader goes on to say, and I paraphrase, quote, Perhaps many Christians in our context, our Western context, want adventure and risk in environment, in an environment of safety. Let me say that again. Perhaps many Christians in our context want adventure and risk in an environment of safety. So he was writing in the context of how many times we're realizing that the world around us is changing and where Christians once felt intellectually safe and where our values were somewhat safe in America, we now find ourselves in the wilderness. That when we think of evangelism, when we think of outreach, when we think of living for Christ in a world of unbelief, we're wanting that adventure, quote-unquote, of camping at Yosemite. That's what we want. And I, I started thinking, and I'm like, man, this guy's right. 
We've been training in the comfort zone. And I don't think it's wrong to train in the comfort zone. But what if we're reaching a point where we can no longer train in the comfort zone? Because as soon as you go out these four walls, you're no longer in any comfort zone. As a student, I remember going on an inner city mission trip. But we were led by a Christian organization that had already built deep relationships with that community. Now, that community was a dangerous urban community. But while we walked those dangerous streets, we felt safe. We had colorful t-shirts with the name of the organization on it. And we were with a guide from that community. You see, safety and comfort are not bad, but a post-Christian world is different. I remember every summer taking some of you with me to a local, another state, but in the United States, another church planting mission trip. And we would partner up with a brand new church plant. We'd go into the park and we set up a VBS or sports camp and we would have these dangerous unbelievers coming to us, children. Children coming with a permission slip, (laughs) saying, my mom said I could come to your Bible camp. Now that's not bad, we love children. And you know what? The youth that we took, you got trained how to share the gospel, but none of us were worried about our values being challenged or being threatened. It was good. It was good, but it was an adventure. But as the youth pastor, I made it into that adventure. I said, hey guys, we're really going to engage these unbelievers now. You guys got to get ready. And, And I'm like, when you go back to your high schools, it's the same thing. Only they can talk back to you. And they don't have permission slips. (laughs) <laughs> and, and so I, I, what I'm saying is not that we don't do training with training wheels on, but what if we need to start pedaling with the missionaries? What if we got to start riding that bike a lot younger? What if we got to start riding that bike ourselves? What if we got to think ourselves of ourselves like that missionary entering the Muslim country, the entry posture This writer, who was a former missionary, says, changes. You're entering into a post-Christian world. Your comfort, your peace, is not in circumstance. It's not in this world. It's not what the world offers. Your peace is within your heart from the Holy Spirit. And what does a Muslim missionary do? The first thing he probably does, and I'm not one, so I'm speaking not out of personal experience, is he or she builds relationships. You start to build relationships with the people whose values are very different from yours. And then what else do you do? You start learning, are there other missionaries maybe that are native to this nation? And you start saying, how do you reach these people? Now think America, think post-Christian values, think people who are very different from you, very different orientation. And you start thinking, rather than criticizing, who are the Christians who are on the front line ministering to these people? What can we learn? What can we learn? That's the first thing. Change your entry mindset. And you can do this in your home, right? Missionary mindset. The second thing is common ground. Common ground. What's common ground? How many of you guys are civil engineers in here? Any? I love you guys because I thought of you. Any? Civil engineers. Shout out. Civil civil engineers. Civil engineers. Cal Poly? Okay. Hey, we are all civil engineers. Who builds bridges, designs bridges? Who who are the ones who determine, okay, what type of bridge do I have to build? 
how much foundation do I, you know, all that. Is, 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 that what, is that what, I see one kind of here, is that what they do, civil engineers? Is that what they do? You guys do that? Yeah, okay, civil engineers. But I want you to think civil differently. Civil, like you're civil with people, okay? We are all called to be civil towards people whose values are very radically different from us, but you gotta figure out how to build a bridge. That's common ground, common ground. Where can you stand? That's what you're thinking about. So you're calculating in your mind, I can't agree with you on those values, and we can't agree on these values, but here's where we can agree, because one, we're human, and two, we're civil, right? You're a civil engineer. That's, you spend less time thinking about, oh, you're so wrong, where you're wrong, and just imagine that, that sooner or later, 75% of the unbelieving world just believes in those things and thinks it's normal, and will argue for it, especially in our state. And start thinking, okay, how do I build a bridge? That's missionary mindset. So, examples. Maybe your kids go to the same school. You might have very different values, but you might share a common concern about the quality of your child's education. This is not brain science. So you can connect over that, and you get very passionate about that. You can work towards the same goals while having very different values when it comes to certain religious beliefs. Maybe some of you have a coworker where you share a common mission to raise awareness for autism. So you're not just talking about work. You're getting into personal life, and you're talking about now, let's, I have a passion, you have a passion to raise awareness for autism. You might not come to my church, but you wanna run this little half marathon together? You want to do this little 5K together? And maybe one day, you, you'll be shocked. They might say, hey, can I come to your church fundraiser? You, you'll be shocked at how missionaries are able to build bridges. You see, we need to look for a shared connection between Christians and non-Christians. And again, this is important because they will disagree with you on Christian values. Because we're in a post-Christian world, not a Judeo-Christian backdrop. But by building the bridge, you're simply doing what Jesus commanded us to do, which is love your neighbor. I caught myself doing this a lot when I talk to non-Christians. I meet a non-Christian, and I don't think this is wrong. So I think this was as far as you'll go sometimes, is that you can start dropping hints. Well, I, I have to out myself a lot earlier. When, as soon as they ask me, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a pastor. What church? And if I say Southern Baptist... I, I, that sometimes people are like, oh, okay, we're not, <laughs> stop talking about it. But you can go further than me. You can go further than me. But you start talking to people, and, and, and you start thinking, okay, I'm just going to love my neighbor. So you can drop hints. You can say, well, you know, um, our church, it just has this thing for our kids. You can drop hints, but don't be a salesperson. This is where it's different. Don't you guys, some of you guys might like it, but most of you don't like it when someone's super friendly to you and you're like, this person's so friendly. And then all of a sudden they're like wanting to sell you something. And you're like, oh, that's why you're so friendly. Don't be like that, right? So don't sell because our job is to love our neighbor. The Holy Spirit's job is to sell the gospel. The Holy Spirit's job is to convert the unbeliever. Remember, these people... Their values are radically different from yours. And our job is to love them, show them that what the media portrays of Christians as hypocritical, judgmental, is not true. That we're human. 
We have, we fight with our spouse too. We yell at our kids too and we need to ask for forgiveness. We struggle too. But we want to love people. We want to love people. Just love your neighbor as yourself. Treat people how you want to be treated. Don't sell them. Don't fake it. Really genuinely find common ground. Build that bridge. And here's where our passage kicks in. If you're able to get, a, you know, across that bridge a little bit, you, you know, at any point, you might get cut off. But do what you can. Okay, do what you can. Meaning if you get rejected or if, they, if I say, hey, I'm a pastor and then all of a sudden they're done. My efforts weren't wasted. I was just obeying God trying to, be a, trying to love my neighbor. And if, if, if they get offended or this is what you guys are afraid of, the awkward conversation, the awkwardness. Right? Oh, I just, they just found out I'm a Christian. This is getting real awkward. It's okay. That's where you take that command. Let not your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Jesus gives you peace. Right? Be okay with the persecution, with the awkwardness. Remember that he paid the ultimate cost. And I love this civil engineer thing. Maybe I'll go back to engineering school. No, I can't. I, I can't even pass uh, algebra two. Um, basically, a bridge, a traditional bridge at least, has two posts, right? You might have a middle ground, okay? Uh, but you, you have to have two foundations, Civil engineers, go ahead and correct me. I'm not an engineer, okay? But, but basically, one side are your values. Your values. You're trying to build a bridge, and the person with radically different values is the other pillar. Do you get that? So you can't really build the whole bridge. All you're doing is trying to meet them in the middle and hope that Jesus Christ takes over. But you got to stand here, your ground here, and still reach out. You lose your ground, your foundation falls. But you got to hold your ground, and you got to try to extend. And if that person doesn't come to the middle, then you got nothing, then you move on, right, lovingly. But that's the obedience. That's what we got to do for a post-Christian world. In October, we want to begin to talk about what that means for us. And that includes that we, we need to be non-anxious theologians. I need to stop screaming at you, okay? We, we, we need to be truth tellers. We need to be virtual. Everything, social media is less words now. It's all video and image. We need to be virtual storytellers, right? We need to be well-versed in the metaverse. <laughs> Just kidding, okay? We, you know, seriously, right? We have to be disciple makers, not just disciples, disciple makers in the church, in the home, we need to change the way we think about our posture as Christians. I got to end. I'm way over time. If you don't have Christ, please believe in Jesus Christ. He died and he rose again. Confess your sin. Repent. He will change your life. All right? I can't wait for the senior pastor series. So prepare your hearts for next week. Pastor Albert's going to lead us for a month just challenging us on what it means to think outside of the box, especially in light of the world that we live in. All right, let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you, Lord, for coming to save us. Father, help us to be your disciple makers in a post-Christian world. Help us to be civil people, civil engineers. Help us every day to calculate how we can build a bridge, what type of bridge. And we know that ultimately you're doing the work through us. Lord, give us that missionary mindset. Give us, Lord, maturity. Help us, Lord, to find common ground so that we can be salt in this world for you. 
Help us, Lord, to hold our convictions with strength, but also extend the hand of love and compassion. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.